Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.20, Science and Societies. Last time, we spent our episode discussing the rise of the colonial press. This week, we are going to continue looking at the emerging culture in the North American British colonies by looking at the arts, sciences, and civic organizations. As was the case in our last episode, we are once again going to turn to Benjamin Franklin to be our tour guide, as he was involved in all of these areas. Before we move forward, however, I want to take a moment and discuss one of my primary sources for this episode. Both last time and today, I do lean pretty heavily on Franklin's own autobiography. Franklin's autobiography is absolutely a good read, and you can glean a lot of insight from it into Franklin himself. I would encourage you to read it if that is something that you're interested in, which, considering that you are listening to my podcast, I would wager to bet you are interested in. However, when we are dealing with an autobiography, you need to go in with a fair bit of skepticism about the accuracy of the material. First, we are talking about events right now that took place in the 20s and 30s. Franklin did not even begin to write his autobiography until 1771. So by the time he writes about events in the 20s, we are talking about 50 years after that event. The second problem with any autobiography is that they are almost universally written with posterity in mind. Benjamin Franklin is no different, and he was likely writing his autobiography knowing that he had led an important life and people in the future would judge him based on the decisions that he made. Not that you should just dismiss Franklin's autobiography. It is a fantastic work. However, always make sure that when you are reading it and you are judging the historical accuracy of it, to realize that Franklin was writing with it in mind that future generations would read it and it would help inform their opinions of him and his work. The 18th century was a period of scientific advancement throughout Europe. With the Enlightenment now in full swing over in Europe, it follows that the scientific advancement touching the European world would spread across the Atlantic to the colonies. While the colonies would have several major scientific advancements, largely led by Franklin, they did lag behind the advancements of Europe. There are several reasons for this. Among the biggest was that the scientific instruments that were being used were largely produced in Europe. The colonies therefore lacked production. Beyond that, Europe maintained the larger population and a more established base of educational institutions. However, although the colonies trailed Europe in terms of scientific discovery, there were absolutely a handful of big names in the colonial sciences. It is perhaps surprising that one of the biggest names in the colonial scientific world was none other than our old friend, Increase Mather. Mather has been on our story for a long while at this moment. He was, of course, the agent from Massachusetts to London in the aftermath of the overthrow of the Dominion government. He then would play a prominent role in the Salem witchcraft trials. However, by the time that 1720 rolled around, Mather had embraced some of the changes that were coming with the Enlightenment. Mather had learned from a slave that in Africa, people routinely received inoculations. Interested by this, Mather would work with a Dr. Zabdiel Boylston, a great-uncle of John Adams, on experimenting with the process of inoculation. When in 1721, an outbreak of smallpox broke out in Boston, Mather encouraged people to try an inoculation. 
Now, admittedly, inoculation at the time was a somewhat terrifying ordeal. Rather than getting an injection like we get today with vaccines, a small incision would be made in the skin, then a pustule from an infected person would be scraped and placed directly into that incision. The process was painful, and though it generally resulted in a mild case of smallpox, it did, from time to time, cause a case which would prove to be fatal. It is interesting that this is the ordeal that would first turn the Bay Colony against James Franklin. Last time, if you recall, I had mentioned that James Franklin had a very public feud with Increase Mather. This feud was over the use of inoculations. Inoculations were not widely supported throughout the colonies in the early 1720s. James Franklin was one of the biggest detractors to the process and would regularly publish tracts in his paper that were hostile to the idea of inoculation. Benjamin Franklin himself does not really mention these spats in his autobiography, which is significant. Franklin's own son Francis would die during the 1730s from smallpox. Franklin would spend the rest of his life regretting that the child had not been inoculated. Franklin, therefore, becomes a very vocal proponent of the practice. Franklin's decision not to mention his brother's position on inoculations may well show that he wanted to ensure that he came down on the correct side of history of that particular debate. Debates over inoculations aside, the biggest name in the sciences within the colonies was Benjamin Franklin for his work with electricity. Without question, the most famous experiment to be conducted by Franklin was his study of lightning. Franklin had observed in previous experiments that lightning had a lot in common with electrical sparks, which led to his theorizing that lightning and electricity were related. It was while studying lightning that Franklin would conduct his famous kite experiment. Flying a kite in a lightning storm, possibly accompanied by his adult son William, Franklin could show that the key attached to the kite string attracted current from the passing storm. It was through this discovery, ultimately, that Franklin was able to propose the lightning rod, a method of directing the dangers of lightning safely down into the ground. The experiments with the kite were not Franklin's first foray into experimenting with electricity. Franklin had already become fascinated with Leyden jars. A Leyden jar is a sort of early capacitor that could store a small charge of collected electricity. Franklin further discovered that to produce an even bigger charge, you could wire up several of these Leyden jars, creating what Franklin himself would refer to as an electric battery, a term which has obviously stuck around. These experiments, and particularly the invention of the lightning rod, would be of particular boon to Franklin in a couple of different ways. Pragmatically, lightning was a significant problem, often striking the tallest building in town, which normally was the church bell towers, Lightning was the source of many fires both in the colonies and back across the ocean in Europe. With so much wood being used in construction, a lightning strike was always at risk of setting off an inferno that could reduce city blocks to heaps of smoldering rubble. The invention of the lightning rod significantly reduced the risk of disaster, and within a few years of its invention by Franklin, it had spread around the colonies. Well, you cannot overstate the practical effect of the lightning rod. Its development would bring along with it an unexpected consequence. The lightning rod made Benjamin Franklin a celebrity, not just in the colonies, but in Europe itself. In many ways, this would make Franklin's later role as an American envoy possible. 
he was already well-known and, more importantly, well-respected in Europe, including in France, where he would prove so important in securing French support for the American Revolution. Now, this, of course, is not to say that he would not have done those same things without his scientific achievements. We don't know how that version plays out, though it certainly did make for an easier transition. The center for the young but flourishing sciences in the colonies was Philadelphia. This was in part because Quakers believed that God had given the individual the ability to understand the world around them. While the Quakers themselves were at the forefront of many of the scientific advancements, it was their willingness to consider the sciences that made Pennsylvania a ripe place for a young man like Franklin, despite that he was decidedly not a Quaker. Other than Franklin, the city had produced other luminaries, such as John Bartram and James Logan, who were both instrumental in the study of the flora and fauna in North America. Philadelphia was a city that was open to the power of scientific advancement and indeed was ideally positioned to lead that charge. The city had a large urban population which helped promote group efforts. They, while obviously religious, were not as resistant to change as the Puritans up in New England, though things were getting better by this point as evidenced by increased Mather's openness to inoculations. What also helped was that Philadelphia would form societies to promote the advancement of such endeavors. Possibly unsurprisingly, it was once again going to be Benjamin Franklin who was at the center of creating all of these new learned societies. Civic involvement and societies were increasingly important parts of life during the 18th century. This was, again, something that was not completely limited to the colonies, but was prevalent over in Europe as well. Societies for advancement had been a thing for a while, in fact, in Europe. For example, the Royal Society in London was a popular group for the advancement of the sciences. While there were American colonists who were members, practical considerations, for example the Atlantic Ocean, made participation difficult. Back in the colonies, there were sporadic societies and social clubs for the most affluent colonists. What did not really exist, however, was something for the middle-class colonists. Now, we are going to spend time in our next episode talking about what I mean exactly by the middle class. But to narrow this down for today, I am talking about colonists who were merchants and artisans. The wealthy landowners had their own social circles, whereas the lower classes were struggling to make sure that they had enough food to eat. However, as small as it was, there was a small percentage of the population that had the free time to undertake such endeavors, yet were not wealthy to the point of graduating up to the more aristocratic societies. The most famous of all of these groups was the Philadelphia Junto, founded in 1727 by, you guessed it, Benjamin Franklin. Okay, so what exactly is a Junto? The Junto was a small group of men, primarily made up of artisans and local workers. Also known as the Leather Apron Club, this group was part enlightened intellectual society and part networking group. The meetings themselves were a mixture of discussion of the topics of the day, ranging from philosophy to politics, as well as providing those same men an opportunity to talk about their own careers and make plans for the mutual advancement of their fellow Gento members. As a networking opportunity, the Gento was highly successful, especially for Franklin himself. Among the members of the Gento was Hugh Meredith, the man who was briefly Franklin's printing partner. It was through the Gento that Franklin would find funding for his own print shop when he moved on from Keimer. 
The club would also prove influential in helping John Bartram further his research and work in the botanical studies in North America. Beyond the pragmatic uses of the club as a networking organization, the Gento proved to be a critical launching ground for a large number of civic organizations that would help to define Philadelphia during the middle part of the 18th century. Franklin, ever focused on the idea that civic involvement and community improvement were essential, would use the Gento as his own personal creative labs for his various projects and endeavors. While the first meetings of the Gento were held at a Philadelphia tavern, the group was soon able to get their first dedicated meeting room. Upon having their own space, Franklin suggested that each member of the Gento bring books to the club and make them available to the group. Quickly, Franklin was able to collect enough books and open the project up to the public. To raise the necessary funds, Franklin set up a subscription system where people would pay a fee for the use of the library. Those funds were likewise funneled back into the project and were used to buy books from London. Just like that, Franklin had founded a public library. Franklin provides us with details in his autobiography. He mentions that the cost of becoming a member was 40 shillings, with a subsequent 10 shilling a year fee. What is more interesting is how Franklin viewed the library, or at least what he wrote about it. Franklin mentions that the library was his first public works project and was a project that he felt improved colonial life. The model of a subscription-based library was the first of its kind in the colonies, and would indeed become the basic model for libraries moving into the future. Of course, membership to the local library is now generally free. However, the subscription-based method had proved to be extremely resilient. Franklin lauded the library as a great boon to the country. He claimed that it made the average tradesperson in the colonies more intelligent than most gentlemen back in Europe. When discussing the library, Franklin further mused that the project could have had a very big impact on the American Revolution. Specifically, he stated that it, perhaps could have contributed in some degree to the stand so generally being made throughout the colonies in defense of their privileges. Now, recall that this is being written years later when Franklin would have been at least aware of the imperial crisis. This is an interesting point, and it tells you about the value that Franklin saw in having an educated society. We have discussed previously that there was a higher rate of literacy in the colonies than back in Europe. It is at least worth the question of if Franklin indeed had a point on the matter. So much of the revolution is going to exist as written word. As we are going to see next season, men like Thomas Paine are going to help fan the flames of revolution. Pamphleteering is going to be a critical aspect of that fight. Well, not clear just how much of a practical effect the library had in practice at increasing colonial literacy, especially considering that the cost of the subscription likely meant that those subscribing were indeed literate to begin with. The library was, like the colonial press, another brick in the wall of the expanding access to information that the colonists enjoyed. Of course, as a printer, Franklin would have also likely been pretty pleased to see more access to books. An increase in political awareness certainly would not have hurt his growing paper. Beyond that, however, the library would also open up other doors that the Gento alone was not going to. While the Gento was and would remain close to the heart of Franklin, it was always specifically aimed at attracting the working class. Merchants, tradespeople, and artisans made up its ranks. Well, this is the image that Franklin wanted to portray, 
he absolutely understood the advantage that came with having connections in the upper rungs of society. The library provided Franklin with an opportunity to mingle with those more influential men in the colony, as they too were interested in the project. In due time, the subscription-based library would thrive and would spread throughout the colonies. Benjamin Franklin was, at his very core, a product of the burgeoning Enlightenment. It is therefore worthy of note that his first civic project was one that focused on education. The library would not be his last attempt to educate the youth of Pennsylvania. Franklin was interested in ensuring that a university was built within the colony. Franklin notably did not wish for this university to be based on any religion, but to place its focus on the teaching of practical applications. This meant that rather than teaching theology, the university would focus on subjects such as writing, math, history, oratory, and business classes. What Benjamin Franklin wanted was an institution that would not focus on the rigid dogmatic teachings that accompanied more religious institutions. Nor did Franklin support the idea of learning for the sake of learning. Rather, he viewed the purpose of education in being the teaching of practical trades. Franklin took over a great hall that had been built some years before during the Great Awakening for George Whitfield and turned it into his academy. Opening in 1751, the university would become known as the University of Pennsylvania in 1791. While he would remain on the board of trustees, Franklin's overall vision for the school ended up getting somewhat lost in the mix. Franklin and the other trustees often disagreed with the direction of the institution, leading to a great deal of tension. Despite these differences with the trustees, Franklin would write in his autobiography about the great enthusiasm surrounding the project and efforts that were made by people all throughout society. Clearly, Franklin wanted to establish a university that was not going to be dominated by any one group, be it Puritans, Anglicans, or in Pennsylvania, likely the Quakers. Franklin also mentioned hosting a school for poor children, which further pushes towards his outlook on the importance of education. Education was clearly at the top of the list of important endeavors for Franklin. However, his next two contributions seem to fall more towards the pragmatic, than the enlightened thinking side of the spectrum. During the 18th century, there were few fears that loomed larger in the minds of people than did fire. The world of the North American colonies during the 18th century included a whole lot of super flammable wooden structures. Especially in urban areas, anytime there was a single structure fire, there was a non-zero risk that the entire city was about to go up in flames. We have already seen the risk that fire posed when we talked about 1741 New York. Of course, that episode was not really about fire safety and flammability in 18th century colonial America. However, the point remains. Urban areas in colonial America were very, very flammable. With his focus on civic improvement, it is no wonder that Benjamin Franklin saw fire as something that needed a solution. Franklin's arguments for the need to fight fires would originate through papers that he would publish in the Gazette. Though he would generally publish under a pseudonym, he did bring the subject up quite a few times in the Gento and wanted to use the power of that group to come up with a practical solution. Now, it's not like there was not a movement to fight fires prior to Benjamin Franklin. It is not like fire was a new unknown phenomenon. For thousands of years, fire had been a serious risk. 
Franklin did a couple of specific things, however. First, he recognized that the methods of fighting fire was terribly inefficient. When a fire broke out, rather than a bunch of volunteers running haphazardly to throw water on the thing, there needed to be some kind of organization and specialization. Franklin further proposed the idea that the town itself and its residents should pay for the fire company. After all, this is being put together for the town, and therefore the town should pay the cost of equipment and training. Franklin would end up drawing up the regulations and laying out how training would progress. A product of the Enlightenment, the group would also have monthly meetings where they would discuss the nature of fire and how to best fight it. Among the civic projects that Franklin undertook that might be most prophetic to his future life, it was the organization of the Pennsylvania militia. Militias had long been a thing in the colonies. Common defense was needed from time to time, and the militia is where that defense came from. The British, as of this point, did not keep a standing army in the colonies. We have seen before, in fact, that it was often difficult to get an actual trained army over when the colonists did in fact need it. Think back to our episode a few weeks ago on the frustrations that the colonists felt towards the continued promise of British regulars during Queen Anne's War. Therefore, when it was necessary to defend the colonies, the job fell on the militia. The militias were comprised of volunteers. These groups typically had minimal training beyond pointing your musket at the thing that you want dead and pulling the trigger. There was little in the way of any kind of discipline that existed. This posed significant risk to the colonies and meant that they existed in a state of perpetual exposure to attack. Franklin proposed the militia during 1747, during a time when Pennsylvania, and indeed all the colonies, were under threat from both French and Indians alike. We are going to spend time in the coming weeks discussing the specifics of that threat. However, for today, just know that there was a genuine threat. As it would turn out, the move would be one of the more radical to date for Franklin. With the Pennsylvania frontier threatened, the colonial government was surprisingly slow to organize any kind of a response. Franklin's militia was meant to be a voluntary organization that, importantly, did not exist at the call of the government for protection, but rather was organized outside of the government. This obviously is not something that the colonial authorities were going to be big fans of. None of them wanted some rogue militia wandering around the colony that was not directly answering to the colonial government itself. This leads us to an obvious question. Why was the assembly so slow to respond? A big part of the problem is that the colonial government was still dominated by the Quaker faction, a Quaker faction that was still very much pacifist by nature. While pacifism and theoretical debate over colonial defense was fine and good when peace was at hand, the Delaware River had become an increasing hotbed of activity for both Spanish and French privateers. The Pennsylvania colony was now in direct danger, and pacifism was not going to win the day. Franklin, writing under a thinly veiled pseudonym, addressed the serious threat that was now facing the colony. Franklin wrote of the disaster that could befall the colony should a defense not be taken up against the privateers. Importantly, Franklin did not simply call on the colonial government to get the job done. Well, certainly he did call them out on the issue. He followed up by a call to arms to the middle class of the colony. Effectively, he had both simultaneously castigated the assembly for their inaction, while completely sidestepping that same assembly 
for the proposed militia. Franklin preached that independently the individual is weak, but united they would be strong. Franklin was obviously unaware of how much the rest of his life would be spent preaching this seemingly prophetic ideal. The militia that Franklin formed, interestingly enough, was based not on social standing, but simple geography. They did this to ensure that everybody had to do their fair share of the common defense and to avoid separating out into merely ceremonial units. Franklin, according to himself, saw thousands of men turn up for service, wanting him at their head, in honor which he rejected. Franklin would likewise be involved in the purchasing of cannons for the new militia directly from New York, once again sidestepping the Pennsylvania Authority entirely. Ultimately, the threat of invasion passed, and in 1748 the militia was disbanded. However, for Benjamin Franklin, this had done several things. First, it is the first time that we see him in a role that would so dominate the second half of his life. In the coming weeks, we are going to again see his interest in the union of the colonies for the common good, something that he would fight for during the French and Indian War. Franklin saw the potential combined power of the United Colonies, and it was a power that he was very interested in trying to harness. That Franklin had totally ignored the colonial government as well was not a point that anybody had missed. Thomas Penn, the colony's proprietor, was not amused by the situation. Franklin would end up engaged in a decades-long battle with the Penn family that would really only be resolved when the Penns are ousted from power during the Revolution. This would, however, conveniently for us, place Benjamin Franklin in London during some of the most critical moments of the imperial crisis. It likewise does not really appear that Franklin saw the militia as being any kind of a radical movement, although it clearly was. Franklin wrote in his autobiography that he had cause to believe that the members of the council, likely talking specifically about the Quakers, seemed to have little problem with a defense for the colony, just so long as they were not required to have any role in it. Nothing in his writing shows that he realized the potential ramifications for what he had done, but that he still seemed to want tacit approval from the government. Either way, for Franklin, this was his first time experiencing some of the very ideas that would so radically influence the course of the rest of his life. A final side effect of the Gento that I want to talk about today is that it provides a lot of information for us about class relations in 18th century Philadelphia and indeed the colonies at large. Franklin, in many ways, stood in for the American story that we love so much today. Franklin was a runaway from a working-class father. He came from virtually nothing and rose up through hard work to become one of the most critical founders. We can engage in debate about Franklin's methods for self-advancement and what expense they came at. However, what cannot be denied is that Franklin really did transform himself from being relatively nothing to becoming one of the leading figures of the 18th century. Franklin appealed to the working classes largely because he was one of them. Franklin, above all else, saw himself as part of the working class, another laborer fighting to make a living. Now, of course, it was not completely true in the case of Franklin. By the time of his death, he had become wealthy and, indeed, even during his life, he spent much of his time in Europe playing the role of a statesman. However, that really doesn't matter. What did matter was the persona that Franklin was able to successfully project that directly connected him to the working class. 
Notice that the Gento was not made up of the rich and powerful. This was the Leather Apron Club. These were men who knew the meaning of a hard day's work. In this way, Benjamin Franklin would eventually himself become something of the archetype of what would become in popular culture to be considered the ideal American. The hard-working, self-made man who scratched and fought his way up. Franklin fulfills the advertisements and propaganda being put out by the Virginia Company following the 1622 surprise attack by the Paladin Confederacy. Rather than the colonies being a place of proverbial milk and honey, they were a place filled with opportunity, so long as the individual was willing to work for it. Franklin valued the craftsman and the skilled laborer, and felt himself bonded to them, regardless of the fact that he spent so much of his life surrounded by European aristocracy and royal courts, and that he worked hard to be equally accepted by that crowd. The Gento, therefore, provided Franklin with a place where he could not just espouse his connections with the artisans, but actively benefit from and encourage cooperation between those same people. Beyond pragmatism, however, the Gento provided a launching pad to so many of the civic improvements that Philadelphia saw in the 40 years prior to the War of American Independence. It would help transform and create a unique culture and a sense of civic duty in one of the leading cities in the colonies, a sense of civic participation that would be, to varying degrees, emulated in other American cities. We have spent the entire episode today discussing the culture in the colonies. What we have not yet discussed is the arts. So, what about the arts? Did they exist? Well, yes, yes they did. However, generally speaking, the arts in the colonies lagged well behind those back in Europe. There was a near-complete lack of notable painters in the colonies, really up until the painters that would end up painting scenes from the Revolution. There was a very young and immature music scene in the colonies, which began in the 1730s. Well, the music scene had matured some by the time the 1750s rolled around, Really, this is nothing like what existed in Europe. We are not even talking on the same scale here. This was much more akin to a concert in the park, rather than it was an established professional philharmonic. The theater was coming along slightly faster than were the fine arts and music, though not by much. Prior to the 18th century, attending the theater was frowned upon, and these sentiments continued into the first part of the 18th century. However, by the middle point of the century, theater attendance was increasing as it became a more popular activity. We know, for example, that George Washington himself was a big fan of the theater, and his favorite play was Cato. Likewise, while in France during the Revolution, both John and Abigail Adams would routinely attend plays as well as the opera. This at least shows that by the last quarter of the century, theater had become enough of a mainstream activity that any prior stigma had worn away. With all of the arts, fine arts, theater, and music included, it was not going to be until after the American Revolution that they would truly flourish. Next time, we are going to wrap up our look at the emergence of a unique American culture by turning our discussion towards the economy. How were the colonists making money during the middle part of the 18th century? How were the British capitalizing on the growth of the colonial economy? And finally, how were the colonists minimizing British gains to their own benefit? With that, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy 
and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we chat about the growth of the colonial economy. <laughs>